All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a returning guest, a very special guest. His name is Anthony Bennett. We talked in 2019, in June to be exact, about the very suspicious death of Stuart Lubbock that is very similar to many of the smiley face killings cases. Uh, Stuart Lubbock, unfortunately, passed away in a very... Um, well-known case in the UK at a TV presenter named Michael Barrymore's place or his estate really outside of London, east of London, and he was found in the swimming pool or in water. Um, he was a young man and there were some very uh, uh, sketchy incidences and activities taking place that night, the night of his, young, of his death that uh, really leads me to believe something malfeasant happened, uh, something that, uh, anyway... Tonight we're going to talk about a different subject, a subject in the UK. The name of the, the is really about police corruption, something that I'm somewhat familiar with after studying the Stephen Port case, which actually is east of London as well, which was the murder of four other young men. Uh, he was, uh, you know, there was recently an inquest. I don't know if anybody's been fired, but uh, it was really kind of a very serious shortcoming in the uh, London police or the city that uh, Stephen Port was in. There's actually... Just a couple updates. There was another young man who was arrested in a secret case in Manchester that recently went public. It was it was kept quiet for two years, and he had drugged and GHB'd men for a long period of time and had over or upwards to 200 victims. So we're going to talk about Operation Tiberius tonight. Um, Anthony, are you there? Yes, good evening. Good evening. Thank you for agreeing to the interview. It's quite, I'm great to have you back. Um, for people who didn't hear the earlier interview, can you talk a little bit about your background and then kind of get into the subject matter we're going to talk about tonight? Well, the background really begins with the case you mentioned because um, until 2006, uh, this was a subject of no interest to me at all. Uh, I wasn't interested in police matters particularly or criminal matters or uh, police corruption. In fact, I didn't really know there was much police corruption in those days. But um, because I lived in Harlow, where the unfortunate man, Stuart Lubbock, was um, murdered, um, I took an interest in the case. And eventually, as I think I told you on the program before, um, I offered to help this young man, or the young man's father. And um, over the course of the next 18 months, um, we compiled a dossier on the case. We forced... Essex Police to reopen the case entirely. Um, six months later, uh, the police arrested the entertainer Michael Barrymore and two others who were with him that night on suspicion of murder. And I wrote my book on the case um, in July 2007. And um, that gave me an introduction to um, police methods and an element of police corruption in that case. Uh, the police, I'm quite sure, conspired with Michael Barrymore and his team to cover up this uh, murder with a, a fake, fake drowning. Now, to skip through very quickly to where we are today, um, because this was such a high-profile case, I got a number of uh, people contact me uh, wanting my help, you know, uh, giving me... Um, accounts of uh, other injustices that have been suffered. And um, out of all of them, uh, one struck me um, particularly as another hoax, and that was the uh, murder of a, a young man called Lee Borkwell. I'm not sure if I mentioned this case to you before. but I don't recollect uh, that. To, yeah. uh, to cut a long story short, Lee, Lee Borkwell was uh, aged 33, he died about a year after um, Stuart Lovett died. And the police version of events right from day one was that he had been working in a concrete mixer at one o'clock at night, uh, emptying setting concrete from inside a concrete mixer. And uh, although this story sounded quite unbelievable, it's fairly unusual to be digging out concrete at one o'clock in the morning. Um, it was a story that was believed, and the police are still running with it to this day, um, 18 years later. And there are ongoing um, attempts to appeal, uh, to get a second inquest, and uh, so on. 
Um, but uh, this murder of Lee Falkwell was related to one of the major drug-dealing empires in East London and Essex. And the connection with Operation Tiberius is simply this, that the young man Lee Balkwell was uh, murdered in 2002. And this was the very year that a major internal investigation was done into police corruption in the Metropolitan Police called Operation Tiberius. And the report is dated 2002. And uh, my particular interest in Operation Tiberius is that um, now that I've got this report in my house, the unredacted report, which I don't think has ever been published, only extracts have ever been published, um, it reveals the scale of police corruption and relates very much to the corruption uh, I discovered and um, Lee Borkwell's father discovered in the investigations of the death of Lee Borkwell. So that's my personal connection with Operation Tiberius, William. Gotcha. And can you talk about uh, what the real story about Lee Balkwell is? What you think the real story is? Uh, well, yes, I can, I can give you um, a brief account of that, certainly. Um, Lee Balkwell was working for um, a family called the Bromleys, in, um, right on the border of the Metropolitan Police and Essex. Let's call it the very east of London. And um, he was... Uh, a lorry driver and uh, a hand in the yard, as it were, just uh, helping out. And he was his job was to drive the cement mixer. And I'll tell you the story, as I believe um, to be the case, from from the evidence. And this is the this is the version we've put forward and have been campaigning for 18 years to get to solved one way or another. But in short, um, that evening, um, Lee Borkwell drove his lorry back into the yard at about half past seven. Now, we know because there was CCTV on the on the place um, that evening that um, there was a drugs delivery that evening. And you can see various people, uh, first of all, bringing in a supply of drugs, um, opening, it, opening the car up, taking out a, a case full of drugs, sorting it out on the ground and then bringing it into the house where no doubt it was weighed and... Uh, and sorted out, and then you see various buyers coming in their car down the lane. And one of the interesting features about that is that it's fairly clear that um, this family, the Bromleys, were well known to the police and had insiders in the police force who were guaranteeing the free passage of drugs to and fro. And this is one of the things that was opened up in Operation Tiberius, the fact that uh, corrupt officers in the Metropolitan Police in Essex are... Um, very much deeply involved with the, the drugs trade, the criminal drugs trade. But anyway, after um, two or three hours sorting out the drugs and uh, no doubt having a drink and so on inside the house, uh, for some reason, um, the young man Lee Borkwell, at half past 11 that night, went out apparently to get a takeaway from a uh, Chinese or a, a chippy in uh, nearby East London. And he can be seen on camera returning um, an hour later, um, half, no, half an hour later. But, of course, it's completely dark by then. It's been dark since nine o'clock. Now, what we do know is that he was reported um, dead, half hanging out of a concrete mixer at um, three minutes past one that morning. And in summary, um, the police version is, and the Bromley's version is that they accidentally switched on the machine while he was working in the machine, um, digging out concrete. But it's absolutely plain um, from the, uh, the details of the case that he was murdered uh, in a savage assault and the concrete mixer was switched on in order to disguise the brutal attack on him. Gotcha. And funnily enough, as, as we're having this interview now, um, <clears throat> after 18 years of um, trying to get corrupt police forces to investigate this death, we have now got one of the top pathologists in the country who has uh, investigated this exhaustively and is quite certain in his own mind that the young man was murdered. So we might be making progress at last. I see. And then um, 
So you've seen this corruption, but you also wrote a book about Madeleine McCann as well, is correct? Or I've, written, I've, written two, I've written two books, yes. One of which is banned? About Madeleine McCann. Well, <clears throat> I'm not sure if your audience have uh, heard of the case of Madeleine McCann. I think so. It's actually one of the more well-known cases uh, from Europe or um, from the UK and the US that Americans do know. So I, think, I, would think, I would think the name is known to quite a few people. But um, Well, there, I don't know if you about, know this, but Netflix recently put out a documentary yes, series. Yeah. Okay. Yes, okay. yes. Uh, that Netflix documentary was totally removed from the truth. Uh, there's no truth in that at all. It was complete spin and a PR the whole way through. But um, no, I became interested in the Madden McCann case because um, the facts didn't seem to add up. And um, the claim was that she'd been abducted. And uh, <clears throat> I never thought that that was the case. And uh, I went into print and wrote a book about it very early on which got me into a lot of trouble um, because the the book was suggesting that she might have died and that might have been a cover-up. And um, unfortunately, my book was banned uh, by the McCanns, and I am still now today under restrictions about what I can say about the case. Wow. Um, so I can't, I can't say too much, but that is a case spent many years on, and it seemed to me to have the elements of a, a hoax uh, but uh, as I say, I uh, am restricted by court order from saying very much about that. I see. And when did that court order go through? Sorry. When 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 did the court make that decision to um, right, your... the, the right? Let me let me uh, explain accurately that in two thousand and nine, I was put under a um, what's called an undertaking, a court undertaking. I undertook not to repeat libels against the McCanns. I see. Unfortunately, over the next two years, um, my uh, activities on the internet got a bit too uh, specific about what might have happened, and I was taken to court in 2011, and the end result of the court case was in 2013. I see. And the McCanns have been very litigious, isn't that true? Is that they've really tried to protect themselves? They have been absolutely extremely litigious. Uh, some uh, along the way, I did a calculation of how much they'd spent on lawyers, and I think it came to several million pounds. That's and they, of course, famously sued the Portuguese detective who uh, investigated the case. They brought an, a damages action against him, which uh, was an extraordinary case. It was started in two thousand and nine and continues until 2017. It ran for eight years in the Portuguese courts, with the end result being that the McCanns lost. So did. And uh, the damages were awarded in favour of the Portuguese police officer, who to this day hasn't been paid. So um, it, was a, it, was a full, it was a strong attack legally against... Um, uh, the um, Portuguese investigator, <clears throat> he was bankrupted over it, um, but defended himself with the help of um, fundraising and what have you, and he emerged a victor in the end. But, uh, but ha- he ha- was. Um, hasn't the McCants, hasn't this, uh, the, the disappearance of Madeline been a kind of cash cow or a cash, you know, they've made tons of money through donations, is that true? If you can talk to that. Yes, that, that has been a byproduct of the case. They, <clears throat> the, the, the publicity was so overwhelming, and it was such an apparent tragedy with a three-year-old girl having gone missing that people poured money into that case. There was old-age pensioners who were getting £90 a week who were giving their weekly pensions to this fund, and there was children giving their month's pocket money to the, the fund. So the money rolled in. There was millions of pounds, millions of pounds right? rolled in. Um the McCanns would tell you that uh, that's been used on legitimate searches and paying for private investigators and so on. But um, so I, I, I wouldn't say it was a scheme to make money, but um, uh, certainly they, they got a lot of money which has been used to pay rather dodgy private investigators, but that's a whole other story. Well, it's a similar story to many of the cases or more famous cases here in the United States where these become cause celeb or they become... Uh, well known due to documentaries, and these these convicts, often convicts of McCanns, have not been convicted, but 
some of these convicts yeah, I'm here. Not sure. I'm, millions of I'm not sure if you're aware if it's an American case or um, a Canadian case. I think it might be American, but there was a, um, a very famous murder of somebody called um, the name was Zapata. I can't remember the um, the first name, but the, uh, the the husband was called Eugene Zapata. Hmm. Does that ring a bell? Not not familiar anyway, to me. You know. He murdered his wife, and one of the reasons I know about the case is that um, they use sniffer dogs in the uh, in that case, in the Zapata case, and they use sniffer dogs in the Madeleine McCann case. And uh, as you probably know, um, sniffer dogs detected the presence of a dead body right. in yeah. the McCann's flat. Right. It's one of the things that um, made most of us feel that something terrible has happened to her. Um, and in the Zapata case, it was the same thing. The... Uh, the dogs located where a body had been, and um, the, the judge in that case, in the American case, um, decided not to allow the evidence from the dog handler. And this happened in 2007, and the McCanns jumped on that and said, well, now look, here's a judge in the United States who has thrown out a case because uh, he doesn't accept the validity of the evidence of the dog handler. But the ironic twist to this, uh, William, was that six months later, Eugene Zapata made a full confession. And it turned out that the dogs had precisely located two places where he had hidden his wife's body. Wow. So it, it turned out to be, um, it, <laughs> let's put it this way, the McCann's never quote that case again now. Because, I bet. Um, I bet. The so the dogs were validated, right? The dog dog. It was uh, entered. So, so you've had a lot of experience with these court cases, Stuart Lovick's suspicious death, as well as Lee Bulkwell, Madeline McCann's suspicious disappearance. So you've definitely seen your, your fair share of these criminal cases. How does that, what was your, that your kind of, how did that affect your opinion of, you know, the Metropolitan Police there in London? Well, um, each of the, each of those three cases, um, the, the facts didn't seem to match the um, original story. And um, in the two uh, cases which occurred in this country, um, and we can go into some detail if you want, but um, there was certainly um, significant corruption in the case that I spoke to you last about, the um, Stuart Lovett case. Uh, Notably, evidence was hidden and evidence was manufactured. Um, but the Balkwell case, um, I walked into a, uh, a clearly corrupt network of, of uh, corrupt officers, mostly ethics police rather than the Met, Met Police. The Met Police, by the way, is the name of the London Police, the Metropolitan Police. Gotcha. And um, in, in that case, I helped um, the father to make a complaint of misconduct against 17 different officers. And uh, we succeeded after four years' investigation by the Independent Police Complaints Commission in getting eight officers um, found guilty of misconduct um, over 26 different aspects of the case. They weren't found guilty of a criminal offence, but they were found guilty of misconduct and can suffer um, penalties under police disciplinary disciplinary procedures. Now, one element of that that I discovered was that um, we originally complained against 17 police officers. But by the time we got around to the end of the investigations, eight of them had resigned. And if you resign um, while the investigation is going on, then you can't be touched by the police. You cannot, you cannot further investigate misconduct unless they can be guilty of a criminal offence. For example, on the very day that the um, uh, investigation concluded, um, the one of the police officers just resigned from the force straight away, and of course, um, it, on the very day that he got the letter, and uh, so um, there, there could be no finding against him. But along the way, I discovered, um, together with the father, Les um, Borkwell, a whole network of corrupt officers, corrupt police officers. And that is what Operation Tiberius is all about. Uh, it is uh, a detailed study. I've got the uh, uh, unredacted report here. It comes to 170 pages. And it 
really goes into very great detail about the activities of nine major crime gangs which operate in northeast London, East London and Essex. I see. And then what what's uh what would the what were the contents of the opera the report itself? Well, I've got, I've got it here. I've just made a few notes, um, which um, I can briefly uh, inform you about. Um, okay, let me just explain. The let me just read out the introduction here. It's quite short. Um, it says here the following report will provide the reader with a detailed analysis of the threat posed to the Metropolitan Police from infiltration by identified organised crime groups within North East and East London. And it says the report will deal with the background to the original request, the terms of reference, um, the context in which the report has been formulated, and synopsis of eight main criminal syndicates and their links to corrupt Metropolitan Police Service officers and staff. And this followed um, a an expose by a journalist the previous year, which um, if I can just uh, find a, a reference to that, um, was uh, what triggered Operation Tiberius. And the, the, uh, a, a journalist called Joanne Goodwin um, prepared an article which uh, exposed the activities of some of these drug gangs. And there was a, a major crisis when this uh, was exposed because people all over the place said, well, something must be done. This this can't be allowed to carry on as it is. And um, so th this report triggered uh, Operation Tiberius, William, uh, which was carried out during 2002. Um, and um, it, it wasn't, the existence of it wasn't, wasn't uh, found out until about um, 12 years later when um, some information was leaked to a journalist. So Despite this extensive investigation, it was totally secret. Nobody in the outside world knew about it. Nobody at Southern Police knew about it. And as I think we can discuss in the program, really, in effect, nothing's been done about it. Interesting. <clears throat> so, but it did, the, the report itself actually talks in detail about how these kind of cartel of police and gang leaders kind of work together, correct? Yes, very much so. Yeah, very much so. Um, let me just uh, read out the, um, the little paragraph here about what they call the depth of the depth of infiltration. Okay. By way of background, first of all, uh, the Tiberius team believes that organised crime is currently able to infiltrate the Metropolitan Police Service at will, and these are the factors they mention. One clustering of corrupt networks of officers within one of the high-level departments of the police and other organized crime investigative units. So, in terms, corruption right at the top, some of the high-level investigative units. And then it talks about, secondly, networks of former Metropolitan Police Service officers who still network amongst serving officers in the North East and East London. Then he talks about long-standing relationships between these networks and organised criminals and concludes by saying this, William, the ease with which existing merger investigations have been compromised and sensitive intelligence regarding other organised crime investigations has been leaked are examples of this infiltration. Operation Tiberius has identified at least three top-level merger investigations where corrupt networks have sought and obtained sensitive intelligence to help them evade capture. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And, um, sorry? It's incredible. So they were able to actually infiltrate and subvert the proper course of law. That's, that's remarkable. Let me just go on to uh, another paragraph where they explain the methodology, the upper um, modus operandi, which will make things a bit clearer, I think. Okay. So these eight, eight syndicates, it says, all of the identified eight syndicates are among the highest echelon criminals. Um, these are the names of 
gang leaders well known um, to the public, um, not only in North East and East London, but across the rest of London, and in some cases nationally. All of the eight criminal gangs, gangs have identified the benefit of having sources within law enforcement, and in particular within the Metropolitan Police Service. In most cases, the full scale of the syndicate's criminal networks has not been identified. This means that the organization could have unknown conduits controlling unidentified corrupted Metropolitan Police staff. I'll explain what a conduit is in a minute. Okay. It is clear that the main members of a network will not generally deal with the corrupted officer directly. In most cases, there will be an associate who is tasked to seek the information on behalf of the syndicate, the conduit. In most cases, this will be a fellow criminal or a former Metropolitan Police officer. And then this is significant, the next paragraph, Sir William. It is also often the case that the syndicate will employ sterile corridors, sterile corridors, meaning that the, only the conduit will know who the corrupted officer is. And often the corrupted officer will not know who the final customer is. Wow. And it goes on to explain that this sterile corridor serves these purposes. One, it prevents the corrupted officer knowing who the final customer is. Whereas if he did know, he might refuse to carry out the corrupt act. Secondly, it keeps the principals distant from any corruption investigations. Thirdly, it prevents the organisation getting the reputation of working directly with the police. And fourthly, it lessens the chances of direct infiltration of the organization by undercover officers. So if you like, the, the, there are corrupt serving officers, there are organized criminal gangs, but to some extent they deal through third parties, conduits who um, deal with each side, but um, it, it uh, enables the uh, uh, corrupt criminals and uh, corrupt police officers to keep apart from each other. Yeah, it's remarkable. Sophisticated. So, sorry, uh, I mean, please continue. Um, I'm sorry, I missed that, William. I was just saying, please continue. Yeah. Um, I, I, suppose we, I suppose we ought to name these syndicates. It might well be that uh, somebody uh, listening uh, will, will be aware of them. Let's just go through the main ones listed here. Okay. Um, the, the Adams family... The Bath Syndicate, the Hunt Syndicate, the Palmer Syndicate, the Keene Syndicate, the Camp Syndicate, the Chrysostomu Panayotis Syndicate, and the Khan Syndicate. So these are all uh, families who have been um, running corrupt, network, corrupt criminal networks for decades, and one of the interesting points for me now that you're contacting me here in the beginning of 2020 is that this report was produced 18 years ago but didn't and it was an attempt it was an attempt to try and uh deal effectively with these gangs and all of them as far as i know all of them are still fully operational and probably just as powerful as um, as they were i think in a way i could probably um, illustrate the power and the strength of these okay. um, gangs, uh, perhaps by giving one specific example, and that is of the Hunt Syndicate, the David Hunt Syndicate. Okay. Um, so I can just uh, find my notes here. Um, yes, here we are. Um, uh, David Hunt um, is known, and it says it in the report here. Uh, if I can just find the, uh, the reference. Um, yes, here we are, page 14. Um, just to introduce it by giving you this one paragraph, short paragraph from um, Operation Tiberius, this is um, the quote. The Hunt Syndicate is one of the most violent groups in northeast London and has been responsible for a series of vicious assaults against debtors and rivals. Their main sphere of influence is drug importation and protection. 
substantial source-sensitive intelligence is held detailing the information supplied to the syndicate, and then it gives the names of various um, informers, basically. And um, I know from the, the, the work I did on behalf of um, uh, Les Borkwell, the father of Lee Borkwell, that um, that syndicate is known to use uh, very violent methods. And I know from my own uh, uh, knowledge that I've built up of the crime networks in London that one favourite modus operandi is um, they take over businesses and, and their, their method is to make an approach for a business they want to take over. It might be dry cleaning, it might be a, a restaurant, it might be a betting shop, might be a sun tanning lounge, and um, they will target it as um, something they want to run or possibly use for money laundering, and they will first of all make um, an offer to the um, owner. The normal modus operandi is for them to approach um, a business. It could be um, a tanning lounge or it could be a betting shop or a restaurant, um, something like that. And the, their initial approach will be to make uh, an offer to the business, uh, usually a ridiculous offer, perhaps a half the market price or less. And um, the typical reaction will be, I'm not selling for that price, no way. Well, he will then be told in no uncertain terms that um, if he doesn't agree, there'll be trouble. And um, if he doesn't comply there and then, if he doesn't do a deal, um, he will get in trouble. And um, typically it will be his windows will be smashed in one week and then um, perhaps something similar. Perhaps um, his the business front door broken into, something like that. And of course, in the end, um, usually the victims give in. So that, that syndicate has gained many business premises through through that method. And of course, and this is one of the reasons I've come to as to why we have so much corruption in this country, is that um, this particular gang, which the police identified as extremely violent, um, are these people going to go to court, William, and, uh, and, uh, and give evidence on behalf of the police? Probably not. They're not incentivized to... Well, absolutely not, because they're in fear of violence. In fact, further on in Tiberius, it, it makes this point that um, it's, it, it's almost... Because of the power and the violence of some of these gangs, it's almost impossible. The police have got the evidence uh, of this kind of activity. They know about it, and it's covered in the report, but they cannot get the victims to go to court. And... Um, I think perhaps I, if we've got a bit of time, if I could illustrate this by looking in, in more detail at um, uh, Dave Hunt and his um, yes, please do uh, the court and the and the the article that was written about him in the court case. If I can just spend a bit of time on this because absolutely it will give it will give you an illustration of um, uh, of how they work. Now, um, in um, 2013, this was, I think, or perhaps a little bit earlier, going back a few years ago, um, the uh, Sunday Times, one of our leading newspapers, did a, a major article about um, David Hunt. And it described him as, a, as a, a criminal gangster who was so powerful that the Metropolitan Police uh, couldn't um, handle him, basically couldn't uh, catch him. And um, if I can just uh, uh, give you um, a flavor of the, the, the article. Um, yes. Just reading bits from the article and skipping out um, uh, certain bits. But um, okay, here we go then. David Charles Hunt is an organized crime boss. He heads a gang dubbed the Hunt Syndicate, which has been described as being an extensive criminal empire that has so far evaded significant penetration. And um, it goes on, it is, this is the crucial uh, aspect, I think. Hunt has been described by the Metropolitan Police sources as being, quote, too big to bring down. He became a close friend and associate of Reggie Cray, visiting him in prison in 2000. Now, does the name Reggie Cray mean anything to you? 
The name Reggie Cray? Right, yeah, absolutely. The Cray Brothers? Absolutely. The Cray, yeah, the Cray Twins, the, the Cray right. Brothers. I mean, they were Britain's most notorious gangsters. I mean, they murdered many people in East London and held a reign of terror over large parts of East London. So we begin the story by Hunt being an associate of theirs. I see. Um, working in the same area of East London and um, no doubt, uh, well, in fact, um, very close um, close friends um, of, the, of the Crays, or of Reggie Cray, anyway. So you, you, you get the picture. This is a young man who's friendly with the Cray twins, and he sees how they operate. Gotcha. So and uh, <clears throat> we then get... We then get to a mention of Operation Tiberius, William, where, um, which ties us into Operation Tiberius, because remember that Tiberius, the work on Tiberius was done in 2002. We're now eight years further on. In other words, this report that I've been reading extracts from has been done. It's been seen by the bosses of the Met, top officers in the Metropolitan Police, and basically nothing has been done. There's been no mention of it in the press, no action has been taken, and the Hunt Syndicate is as strong as ever. So the article goes on like this then. A police investigation into the Hunt Syndicate, codenamed Operation Tiberius, concluded that it had managed to evade prosecution through a mixture of utilising corrupt police contacts and intimidation of witnesses. The crime gang were uncovered by the crime squad in Newham, East London in 2006 when a scrapyard in the Docklands area of East London was searched for stolen metal. When another nearby property was raided as part of that operation, 42 containers were unexpectedly discovered to contain the contents of 18 lorry thefts and a commercial burglary. Counterfeit goods were also seized. Now what happened then um, is that this crime of the scrap metal yard was investigated by uh, a middle-ranking detective called Dave McKelvey. <clears throat> and if you look up the name Dave McKelvey, and if your readers can look up uh, the name Dave McKelvey on the internet, they'll see quite an extraordinary story, and I'll just give you the outlines here. Okay. Um, Dave McKelvey... Dave McKelvey was the head of the crime squad, and he discovered that the, um, the Hunt gang had been corrupting police officers for over a decade, and that despite a gang insider leaking information to the police, the information was never acted on. And it says, despite overwhelming evidence, the case collapsed after a corrupt, corrupt anti-corruption detective, get that, a corrupt anti-corruption detective, sent a dossier to the prosecutors raising concerns about McKelvey. So what you've got, what you've oh. got here is you've got an, you've got an honest um, copper, Dave McKelvey, middle-ranking, head of the local um, crime squad. He finds evidence, good, strong evidence, that um, the Hunt Syndicate is behind a, a number of lorry thefts and uh, other criminal activities. He start, in fact, uh, uh, he doesn't mention it in the report here, but I know that he, uh, he arrested one of the, um, uh, the suspected criminals, and within, I think, 24 hours, he was ordered to de-arrest him by a senior officer. And um, what followed, if I return to the uh, script here, uh, the, a corrupt anti-corruption de detective, um, so McKelvey is trying to arrest this man. He's then told that the man's got to be de-arrested. Then the, the so-called anti-corruption squad comes into it and immediately um, sends a dossier to the uh, prosecution service alleging uh, crimes committed by McKelvey. McKelvey, right. Um, com complete, uh, some kind of alleged um, technical offence, um, sort of a he was subject to misconduct proceedings. It, it never went anywhere, but basically he was um, he was drummed out of the police force. And funnily enough, um, he now heads a team called TMI, T-M-E-Y-E. -E. Again, you can find that on the internet if, if your um, listeners want to um, read up on, on, on their work. It's uh, out there on the internet. And funnily enough, he now, Dave McKelvey, is helping um, Les Borkwell, who oh, I helped for many years. So 
he's now because Dave McKelvey knows activities of this uh, this gang. Um, he's obviously keen to help Liz Balkwell, and um, we're very much in the final stages, hopefully, of getting justice in this case at last. But oh, so, um, this gives you an idea of the power of the um, the syndicate. You've got um, uh, the syndicate committing major scale crimes, um, lorry thefts, lorry heists, stopping lorries, and uh, uh, emptying the, the contents and what have you. Uh, all sorts of other criminality associated with the drugs. You get um, an honest copper who intercepts this activity, arrests somebody, does some in investigative work, invests, and then the the honest officer is handed out to the police force, and um, the the empire, the Hunt Empire, and all the other empires keep on going. Right. So they're still pretty much active to this day. Would you say so, Dave Hunt and? Oh, absolutely, oh, absolutely, totally. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, William, I've been in touch with Les Walker now for, um, for what, um, it sounds um, 13 years. Funny enough, he phoned me up this morning, and I, sorry, not this morning, earlier this week, and um, I told him about this radio program. He's very interested. He uh, he urged me to try and name some of the corrupt individuals, and uh, he has um, not given up hope at all, and hopefully we might be very near the, the end of the game. But Les Walker... I've kept in touch with for um, 18 years and, oh. uh, and helped him along. And um, he has given me a lot of information about how these corrupt networks work. Um, one of the things that it, um, is quite clear, looking at the um, uh, at the report here, and also what Les has told me, is that, um, that the the whole network system depends on convenient meeting places and opportunities. So, commonly, um, corrupt individuals, whether they're police officers or criminals, will meet at a, a social club, or at an event, it might be somebody's birthday party, or it might even be a club, a, fo a football club. There's one major network that, um, where uh, <laughs> a team of police officers used to play a team, team of criminals. They used to meet regularly and play football matches with each other, because they'd have a game of football, and then they'd discuss all their corrupt details in the um, clubhouse afterwards. Um, there was another another major operation which was run from a gym in East London. Again, um, the the gym contained some some offices um, above all the, the gym and the swimming pool and so on. And again, this was a convenient place for um, the corrupt network to socialise and um, make contacts and discuss all their corrupt deals. By the way, before I forget. Um, Going back to Dave Hunt, his place was raided sometime in the, uh, the not the previous decade, but the decade before, about 15 years ago. I, I learned this from one of the police officers who was involved in the raid. And uh, <clears throat> they looked inside, and they managed to get access to David Hunt's safe. And um, within the safe, they found a letter. And uh, this letter was a letter from um, a criminal. To hunt, and in it, he he was um, he said uh, it was obviously an aggrieved criminal who, who perhaps things hadn't gone uh, as well as they should. But this letter said, "Look, um, why am I paying all these corrupt officers all this money when they can't uh, help me out?" So there, perhaps you get a flavour of the, the the systematic nature of this. There are corrupt criminals sending in checks or bundles of notes, which they know will end up in the hands of corrupt police officers. And they, this letter was um, found and produced, um, which um, showed that he, uh, uh, he was paying the money. Um, and yet, um, in some cases, uh, perhaps the police haven't been able to help them as much as possible. Yeah. But anyway, I, if, you, if you just allow me to, to sort of go on to a, another aspect of this yes, case. Yes, please I've do. already explained, explained to you that um, Dave, David Hunt was is one of the most feared gangsters in the uh, country. Now, when this article appeared in the um, Times newspapers, um, Hunt was outraged, and um, he um, instructed lawyers to um, sue the Times newspapers. Now, fairly unprecedented, that, and you'd have to say fairly risky, I think. And so he instructed lawyers. He asked the Times newspapers to withdraw their comments. Uh, he said, look, I'm not, I'm not a drug dealer. I'm just... Uh, 
I'm just an ordinary chap who, who likes um, to race pigeons and do a bit of part-time work scrap business. And um, the Times newspapers would not back down, and he'd sue them. And um, I've got here uh, an account of how the, how the court case went. Um, essentially, uh, there was about um, three or four hearings. It went on over uh, about um, uh, two or three years. Um, the, the judgment, if I could come to that first, um, just reading out from the court judgment, it says here that uh, judgment was given in favour of Times newspapers and against David Hunt. Uh, it said, regarding the uh, allegation that he was responsible for violent assaults on a victim, that was proven. And had he threatened to the party to a property dispute and orchestrated an attack on him, yes. Had he avoided prosecution through intimidating a witness? Yes. And then finally, the judge said that he was the head of an organized crime network who was in, implicated in extreme violence and fraud. And, and therefore, uh, the case was lost. Now, um, the, the, the extra dimension to this, um, uh, William, not only did, did he suffer a humiliating defeat in the court, but the, the court case almost never went on because um, because of what was known about Hunt's methods, uh, his syndicate, um, he um, was known to intimidate uh, court officials and uh, attempt to nobble juries and so on. And uh, the, the first um, team of security officers who was appointed to look after court officials and uh, and the jury and uh, so on had to be stood down because they suffered severe intimidation. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> a second uh, security services um, company was approached, and because of the Hunt's reputation, because of the syndicate's reputation, um, they similarly declined to. They declined even to to get involved, and uh, uh, eventually they found a third security uh, uh, agency and. Um, uh, the the trial moved to a conclusion, but um, the quite clearly um, he he was proven to be a gangster, and uh, the Sunday Times won their case. But it gives you um, uh, a good insight. I'm just looking here at so one of the other reports here. Which do do you know? Is, uh, sorry to interrupt, but do you know Anthony whether he had to pay damages or court costs? Oh yeah, costs, costs. Yeah, so costs. Cost. Uh, yeah, he was claiming damages against the um, the Times newspaper. So the way it works in a damages claim is you, you claim damages. If the court finds against you, then um, you don't have to pay damages, but you have to pay the other side's costs. Right. So he would have had to pay costs, which would have been several hundred thousand pounds at least. Yes. So, yeah, he'd be out of pocket. But um, the this report that I'm, I'm reading now says... Um, the five-week trial, it said, gave a unique insight into how criminal gangs still exert a powerful grip on London and how their ringleaders can escape justice by wielding menace and intimidation. More worryingly, the case has even led to claims that Hunt had infiltrated some of the Metropolitan Police's most sensitive units and bribed officers to ensure he is not convicted for his crimes. And then he goes on, there could hardly be a more urgent matter of public interest. And um, it then goes on to ask how how he became um, the boss of such an untouchable criminal network. And he's still untouchable to this day. His network is untouchable. And quite honestly, um, the Metropolitan Police have given in. Um, they just cannot attack these um, uh, criminal gangs. And that is why last week I was very encouraged to see that our new Prime Minister Boris Johnson had said that he would take personal charge of a fresh attempt to um, effectively reduce the influence of these gangs. He made a speech last week in which he said he was going to set up a task force and head it up personally to um, to take effective action. But, so uh, so part of the reason they part of the reason they've immunized themselves these criminal criminal gangs is they've infiltrated the Met police to subvert and uh, expose any type of actions against them, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. 
what were Tiberius's recommendations? Yeah, um, right at the end, let's have a look at them, yeah. Um, yeah, very good point. Um, okay, the headlines then. This, um, these, it won't take me long. Um, it is the view of Operation Tiberius team that these organizational failings, which they detail, can be addressed through a change of mindset. The Metropolitan Police Service has a, a serious problem with organized crime infiltrating its databases and compromising its operations. Only a holistic approach to this problem will result in success. In addition to the proactive and disruption strategies, the Metropolitan Police Service must be proofed against further infiltration through the implementation of the Integrity Strengthening Program and um, what he calls operational security and inclusion policies. And so the final um, sentence is this. In conclusion, Operation Tiberius has identified the serious threat posed to the Metropolitan Police Service by organized crime. This is not the first time this threat has been identified. But now, new, innovative, far-reaching and audacious strategies are ready to be implemented to neutralize that threat. Gotcha. That was written by a rather low-level detective sergeant, and um, it's clear that whatever they've recommended has failed. And um, I, I think uh, uh, I want to explain how embedded the corruption network is in the in the okay. police. Please and do. I, in preparing for this um, interview, I, I I I've just jotted down a few little headings uh, as to the reasons why there is so much police corruption. Can I just run through them? You might like to ask me about particular ones. Yeah, please do. Um, first of all, the process by which police officers become corrupt, and I, I can talk a little bit about that. Then there is the activities of corrupt ex-police officers who are able to retire on full pension after 30 years and um, often make a, a very useful living afterwards by um, uh, doing work for criminal gangs. Then we have witness intimidation, which I've, I've mentioned already, the um, intimidation of witnesses and the fear of repercussions. And then there's another aspect which is highlighted by some, um, some uh, investigators and some commentators, and I feel this is a, a very important one. The people who run the police forces these days are not, as they used to be, people who started off being coppers on the beat, doing um, basic policing in the community and then working their way up. If you look at all the um, chief police officers and um, the deputies, the assistant deputies and all the rest of it, almost none of them have ever done basic police work. They've all been trained in police colleges. They've got degrees in um, criminology and um, sociology, things like that. And, and they have a kind of collective mindset which has become corrupted. And so they, they are fully trained these days, in, for example, in how to cover their own backs they will discuss these things at these police colleges. They will discuss these things. So we haven't got the people running the police force um, these days who, who, who grew up um, patrolling a neighborhood and then working their way up as a constable and a sergeant and so on. We've got these academic types who are running the police force. And a good example of that, William, if I go back to probably at the best head of the Metropolitan Police we ever had, his name was Sir Robert Mark. And he operated in the 1970s. And he, um, he knew that police corruption was rampant and he set about it in a wholehearted way and rooted out many officers. He prosecuted them. He got the evidence and he prosecuted them. And he had been a, a soldier actually in the, um, I think he was in the D-Day operations uh, in, in the um, Second World War. He'd, he'd been a soldier in the war, and then he became a police officer and worked his way up in the ranks. And he knew what the police force was like and, and dealt with it accordingly. And um, and yet today we've got this um, sort of university-trained liberal left um, uh, cadre of senior officers, and um, they've got a different mindset altogether. They're more administrative, so, yeah. 
Um, well, another another bullet point I've got down here is the complete ineffectiveness of the main complaints bodies. We've got a, a body called the Independent Police Complaints Commission that investigates complaints. Ineffective. Further, further related to that is that 99% of all complaints against the police are investigated in this country by the police themselves. So when Les Borkwell first complained to the police uh, back in 2002, for example, his case was investigated by Essex Police. And um, the Essex Police investigated the complaint and um, dismissed it. In fact, said that there had been a very good investigation. Now, I came along to help Les five years later, 2007, and I realised that his case hadn't been handled well. In fact, it was full of corruption. And um, so we launched um, a set of complaints to the Independent Complaints Complaints Commission, and they were so serious that it was taken out of Essex Police, and that's how we got the IPCC to find 26 um, uh, allegations of misconduct against eight senior officers proved, and that was a heck of a job to do that. Um, but so one of the campaigning points really for us would be to not to allow the police force to investigate themselves. It's fairly obvious, really. Right, it doesn't make sense. Uh, um, another bullet point here which we could discuss is the handling of informers. Um, when we go down to look at police corruption in detail, um, we find it's very often the case that the police will um, uh, get hold of an informer and the informer will have what's called a handler who will usually be a fairly senior officer. And that is where time and again corruption has occurred. Uh, the informant um, doesn't merely inform perhaps on a few criminal activities, but he actually becomes involved in assisting the police with their corruption. Um, and um, a couple of other things. Um, first of all, our libel laws in this country. Um, quite a lot of crime has been covered up because um, our libel laws are the strictest in the Western world. Now, if you compare us with America, I know this for a fact, in, um, you have much greater freedom of speech in America than we do here in Britain. And that's largely because in the last 70 years, um, a small group of people have built up the libel laws to such an extent that um, you are really not at liberty to make any any kind of allegation uh, uh, of corruption against a senior police officer or, or indeed any anybody else. You have to be, if you want to make an allegation that you think you can prove, you have to be rich. And uh, this was my difficulty a few years ago. I, I made allegations against um, the, um, the McCanns and... Um, I uh, probably very foolish to do so, and um, I couldn't afford to defend myself, so I had to give in and agree to to be to comply with these court orders. Um, had I had I been operating in America, I think I would have been allowed to make those allegations. And then finally, um, William, Freemasons in this in the police force. Now, I don't know the extent to which Freemasonry operates in the United States. I have no idea, but it's a, a very extensive network in this this country. And um, particularly in police forces, M many police forces are overloaded with um, uh, Freemasons. And um, one, the one um, police officer that who, uh, who came to me for help was um, somebody who um, more or less blew the whistle on one of these criminal gangs in Essex. And um, I call his name John, that's his first name. And um, he actually, uh, rather like Dave McKelvey, he managed to stumble on a criminal gang that was operating with the benefit of um, police um, uh, corruption. And um, and he, um, uh, in the same way as Dave McKelvey, he was accused of ridiculous offences, uh, alleged offences, and he was kept waiting for about... He was never actually charged with any offence, but they just kept bailing him um, week after week, making his life a misery. He was completely innocent, a lovely man, Absolutely honest. And um, when I talked to him and went into his, his case in detail, um, he told me that right at the beginning of, fairly near the beginning of his career, when he was a police sergeant, he'd been approached by an officer we now know to be seriously corrupt in Essex. And he was asked to tell a lie on behalf of this uh, officer. Um, and he wouldn't do so. 
Uh, and um, he never got any promotion after that. And before that, before this incident, he had been repeatedly asked to join the Freemasons. And he refused. He didn't want anything to do with them. And um, those two things cost him his career. He wouldn't join the Freemasons, and then he wouldn't lie for a senior officer. And he told us um, um, many years ago that the, the corrupt officers uh, always used to, in Essex's, not the Metropolitan Police, they would all gather together every Thursday at a, a Freemason's Lodge in South End on Sea in Essex. They all go down Thursday and they discuss all their business, how much money they were getting for this, that, and the other. Um, totally corrupt. And if, if, if I've got a moment left just to illustrate this power of the Freemasonry yeah, in please one do. particular case. Yeah, please do. Um, let me just talk about the Daniel Morgan case, which again is one that you will find on the internet. Very famous case. Yeah, I've had a, I've had a full interview with somebody about the Daniel Morgan case. So you have, yes. Ah, oh, right. Well, good. Well, now, are you aware of the Freemasonry dimension in that case? We talked a little bit about the Freemasonry involved in Daniel Morgan and the Hillsborough disaster. That some of the Freemason ah. influence was one of the reasons why these things got covered up or manipulated. Okay, so just to move to the the, the, the head, headline there is, if you've already covered it, then your listeners will know that there were altogether six inquiries, all conducted by the police, uh, as to what, what happened in that case. And um, after five inquiries, which all spent a lot of time and a lot of money and got nowhere... Yeah, very um, costly inquiries. Sorry? The inquiries were very costly. They were in yeah, the seven costly. figures or very, something like that, yeah. Yeah. So there were these five which took place over a period of 15 to 20 years. And then um, at the end of that period, the family uh, got some advice and they went to the police and said, right, um, we need another investigation. And I think they had a member of parliament backing them. And the, the family said, uh, Daniel's brother Alistair said, um, and the family said, right, we're not having anybody who is a Freemason on this inquiry. Nobody who is a Freemason is going to be allowed by the family to be on this inquiry. Now, the police um, at first refused, but in the end, somebody high up agreed to this. And the whole team uh, involved in that sixth inquiry, the sixth review, had to declare that they were not Freemasons. And it was only as a result of that sixth inquiry um, uh, that um, three people were charged with m the murder of Daniel Morgan. As, as you probably know, but yeah, the point I'm making is that it was only as a result of excluding all Freemasons that any progress was made. Yeah, it's incredible that that influence is still there in the UK and still in the US, really. There's still secret society. In the US so well? Well, to a certain extent, I think most cop police here are encouraged to join some of these fraternal orders, and some of one of which is the Masons. So I think it's still there. But Anthony, we are at a full 60 minutes. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything we missed? Anything you'd like to uh, finish up with? Not really. Um, I would only like to say that I, I've been taking great interest, of course, in the great um, uh, debate over the uh, alleged Russian um, collusion, right. which uh, didn't get anywhere, and the great impeachment trial. I, have, uh, I would love to know if you're going to cover some of the uh, activities of the... Uh, the Democratic Party and the deep state over there, because that's the source of great interest over here. Um, the media over here are solidly pro-Democratic Party. I see. And very much against President Trump. But there are um, some of us over here who see things a different way. We don't say um, that President Trump is a saint, but um, we do know that the Democratic Party has been up to all kinds of um, corruption. Oh, uh, so, so incredible Sorry, corruption. am I saying the wrong thing? Here? No, no, it's incredible corruption. They're really involved in so much time-wasting and false accusations based upon information they know. So the Steele dossier, Steele is a left-wing sympathizer who heard something in a bar where the person then denied it, but they said it was legit, and they used it to spy on Trump's campaign through Carter Page. And Christopher Steele is... Uh, uh, a left-leaning liberal type who is um, 
allied with the um, the wrong people in this country, and uh, his dossier is fake. Uh, yeah. No doubt about it. I think yeah. he's more or less admitted to it. But then there is the the additional corrupt way in which the Pfizer warrant was uh, obtained, yes. and then there's the, um, the the Ukrainian corruption, which is really all the Democratic Party, the Bidens and the uh, Clintons and the Pelosi's. Pelosi's, and so on. But, yes. Uh, yes. Anyway, I, I haven't come on to talk about that. That's I, all right. Um, well, we can do I, another I, interview. It, it, I mean, it gets bigger because then there's Stefan Halpers around there. He's moving around out of uh, England as an intermediary, getting paid seven figures by the FBI to, you know, talk to people on the Trump campaign. Yeah. So uh, there Look, was all kinds of you, malfeasance. Will, will you give me a bell when you cover that? And I'll listen in eagerly. I will. I will do that. But uh, tonight it was me and Anthony Bennett talking mostly about Operation Tiberius, this inquiry into corruption at the Metropolitan Police Force in London, and we, we covered a few other other sub- subjects, such as Stuart Lubbock, who we talked about in June, Lee Balkwell, and a little bit of Madeline McCann as well. So, uh, Tony Bennett, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you coming on the show. Not at all. Lovely to talk to you. All right. Take care. Have a good day. Yeah. Right, Bye, then.